You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. So great to have you with us. Uh, for those who are in person and watching online, my name is Nick. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're just blessed to have you worshiping with us today, uh, whether it be in person, as I mentioned, or online. And uh, before we jump into God's Word, I just wanted to do something. You know, uh, I don't know what your week has looked like. I don't know if this has been a good week or a difficult week, a stressful week or an exciting week. And, you know, we're all different places on that. Just to be honest, this was a difficult week for, for me uh, on a lot of fronts, just things facing and dealing with and walking through. And it's been kind of a draining, exhausting week. And I don't know if you've had those times before where, uh, you know, working late into the night and getting up early in the morning and not sleeping well and, and all those types of things. That's just been one of the, those weeks that I found myself in. And maybe you're there in that place. And you know, one of the things I've, I've recognized in my life that when, when, uh, when I'm walking through something or struggling or difficult, one of the best things I can do is to help other people. And you know, when you're down, when you're discouraged, when you're frustrated, when you're irritated, whatever it might be, one of the best things you can do isn't to fight against that, but it's to help people. And so I want to take a moment before we jump into God's word and just pray. If you found yourself in a difficult place this week, this has been a tough week, uh, if this has been an awesome week, that's awesome. We, we celebrate with you. But if this has been a difficult week, can I ask you, this might be a little bit of a step for you, could you just stand and we're just going to pray. Um, I know it's been hard for me and uh, maybe it's been hard for you. And uh, let's just pray this morning. You know, we can walk through life and it's okay to admit that sometimes things aren't great and sometimes it's okay to say, hey, I'm struggling and that's all right. And uh, we want to pray because God meets us in that place. God, I thank you. Lord, that we don't walk into this life or this world perfect, that we don't have it all figured out. As Christians, we don't have to keep a mask on that says we have it all figured out and that we're perfect and we're polished and everything is great. God, it's okay to admit that sometimes things fall short, that sometimes we struggle, Lord, sometimes uh, we're discouraged, Lord, sometimes we don't have what uh, the task before us requires. And God, I pray for each of us this morning that are here, that this has not been a good week. Maybe it's been a difficult week. Maybe it's been a draining week. Maybe we're exhausted. We just limped our way through the week. Jesus, I pray that you would meet us in that place. God, that when we are weak, you'll be strong. That your grace would be more than enough. Lord, that your grace would be sufficient. God, I thank you for your presence. God, I thank you for a church family that we can walk through things with. God, I thank you that we don't walk this journey alone. God, that we have relationships with you and with others. God, I pray that you would strengthen us. Holy Spirit, empower us and equip us for everything we need. Lord, we can't do this without you. God, I thank you for that. And I pray for everybody that's here. God, that you would bring healing, wholeness. God, that you wouldn't fix all the problems, because I know that's not going to happen. God, but you would give us what we need to get through them. You would give us wisdom, insight, creativity, strength beyond what we've known before. Lord, that you would be more than enough for us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Thank you guys for, uh, for joining us today. Um, we are in a series called The Time of Your Life. And uh, there we go. Um, before, uh, before the TV show became popular and uh, Sheldon Cooper became, you know, a household name, uh, the Big Bang Theory was actually a theory. I don't know if you know that. Before it was a TV show. Some of you are like, what? Are you serious? 
actually before it was a TV show, it was actually a theory. And, and the theory is this. It states that the universe originated billions of years ago uh, through a rapid expansion of a single point of infinite energy density. That basically everything we know, the complexity and beauty of our world, all came from an explosion, a bang. Uh, uh, order, you know, came from chaos. The world's existence and all of its uh, beauty was the result of chance. Simply the random clotting of elements that resulted in this big bang. And while there are some valid explanations to this theory, the problem I have with this theory, one of the problems, beyond just the, the science, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know that stuff, but it, it's really the practice of it all. Like, are we all here today simply because some random elements collided? That doesn't seem to make sense. And, and, and this uh, really uh, dependent uh, idea, or this, this uh, theory, um, uh, that, that everything we see and experience is a matter of chance and the random occurrences that happen are just uh, random and we have no control of them seems a little far-fetched to me. And if this is the case, if everything is the result of random things, then what a scary, uncertain world we found ourselves in. Like, that's a really scary thought. If everything is just a matter of chance, the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, are, are just one random moment away, no wonder people would be freaked out by everything that's happening in our world. Because it, it seems like a crazy world. Everything's upside down. And, and in these moments, this is when I find comfort in verses like this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, He makes everything work out according to His plan. Or, or Romans 8, 28, where it says, And God works all things for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Or Psalm 139, 16. I love this verse. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And these verses remind me that in the midst of all the chaos and the uncertainty that has become so common in today's world, that God is still working out his plan in the midst of the mess. That God isn't surprised or caught off guard by what happens, but he is still committed toward his incredible purposes. Maybe you're here today or maybe you know, you're watching online and you found yourself struggling with the, the hand you unfortunately have been dealt. The circumstances that have so randomly fallen in your lap and you're not sure what to do. Maybe the way your marriage is going isn't good. Maybe you're, you're, you're struggling with how your career just imploded right before your eyes. Or, or, or the, the diagnosis or the loss of a loved one that you never saw coming. Or, or the news you've recently been given that has kept you up night after night after night. Can we be honest with each other today? We live in a very scary world. It's scary out there. It's okay to admit that. that, that there are things that are very uncertain and sometimes it can be frightening. So what do we do? Where do we turn? How do we process this? How do we, we walk through this? I want to go back to a story that's contained in the first part of the Bible. It's called the Old Testament. It's the book of Esther. And it's this really crazy story in the book of Esther uh, we've been walking through here at church throughout this month. And, and it's this troubling yet exciting and incredibly fascinating story of a woman by the name of Esther. In this story, there's this uh, moment of significant pain and wrong that transpires. 
But through it all, God's work beneath the surface uh, is, it becomes visible as he redeems all that was seemingly wrong in the world. Now, if you missed the last couple weeks, uh, you can go back and listen to the podcasts on all the pl- podcast platforms or, or watch the messages on YouTube. But, but to kind of bring you up to speed, uh, we're in the 5th century B.C. in the Persian Empire. There's really four characters we're kind of following in this story, four specific people. Uh, the main characters are, are uh, the king of the Persian Empire, a guy named Xerxes. And Xerxes was a man who was, had a very impulsive personality. Uh, his, his right hand, kind of second in command, a guy by the name of Haman, uh, Haman had a really big ego and an even harder heart. He, was just, uh, he had just convinced the king to set a date of 11 months out because he rolled a pure or, or a die and set that date where all the Jews across the empire would be annihilated and all of their goods would be plundered. Uh, there was basically a genocide that was scheduled and he was responsible. He's the one that had presented this. Um, and then, then there was Mordecai, a Jewish man who worked at the epicenter of the Persian Empire, the citadel of Susa. He had kept his Jewish roots hidden for most of his life. He had assimilated fully into Persian culture, becoming as Persian as a Jewish person possibly could. That was until he was required to bow before Haman one day, and he refused. This was the moment for, ha- for, for Mordecai that the mask came off. The fact that he was Jewish all of a sudden now was, was let out. Then finally, there's Mordecai's cousin, Esther. Uh, this beautiful young woman that Mordecai had raised as his own daughter because both of her parents had died at a young age. He encouraged her to hide her roots as well, just as Mordecai had, and, and entered her into a pageant that would eventually result in her becoming the queen of Persia. Uh, we left last, uh, things last week, if you weren't with us, where Mordecai challenged Esther to do something about this edict, to annihilate the Jews. And, uh, and, and we left off as she finally stepped into her moment, the end of Esther chapter 4, and, and she decided she's going to do something about this. Now, up to this point in the story, so much of what has happened seems to be so random and by chance. Uh, similar to how many of us experience life oftentimes. But, but Mordecai and Esther both felt this strong conviction that this wasn't actually the case. That, that, that what they were experiencing wasn't random, wasn't, was, but was part of a bigger plan that, that was, was unfolding. Uh, acting upon that conviction uh, posed an incredibly dangerous risk for both of their careers and even their lives. But it was a risk that they both were willing to take. And as we left things last week, Esther had just asked all the Jews across the empire to fast and to pray for her as she was going to approach the king in his inner court. An action that, if it weren't welcomed by the king, could result in her death. Now, many of you have joined our surrender challenge, similar to what she asked the Jews to do, to surrender something for the sake of what God was doing. Many have, have joined this surrender challenge, and we're, we're walking through this uh, in 21 days go, leading up to January 30th as, as we, you know, take time to spend with God and, and take uh, $5 to bless people and five minutes to serve someone. And, and as God is using you, man, I'm, I'm getting to hear so many awesome things. Please share that with us, because what we're going to see here uh, today was a result of that surrender that the Jews had done as they set aside uh, food and water and, and, and decided, hey, we're going to dedicate ourselves to the Lord. Now, in chapter 5 uh, of, of the book of Esther, we find Esther now adorned in her royal garments. She's standing in the inner court of King Xerxes. She's close enough for him to get a glimpse of his beautiful queen and close enough to get a whiff of her enticing perfume. Here's what it says. Esther chapter 5, verse 2. 
It says, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now, what took place here is you couldn't approach the king unannounced. You could actually be killed for that. So she was taking a little bit of a risk here, even being the queen. So as he extended his gold scepter, that was his way of saying, you're, you're welcome, you're allowed. So uh, that, that uh, basically spared Esther of the potential consequence for coming unannounced. And he then not only invites her to approach his throne, but was ready and willing to give whatever request she might have. Here's what it says in verse 3. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. Wow. What a statement to come. This, you have to understand, King Xerxes is an absolute authority. He wasn't elected. He had no checks or balances. Whatever he said was law. He was an absolute, he was almost to the point of deity. So for him to make that kind of a statement is a pretty significant. And her request to him would be a, a nice, quiet evening over dinner with her, King Xerxes, and his second-in-command, Haman. Uh, after all, you know, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? Some of you might agree with that. Uh, the, the way to please a man uh, and make him happy or whatever is, you know, get him wings for the Steelers game or something. Um, I don't know. That's not prophetic. I'm just throwing stuff out. Now, now uh, they have this dinner, the three of them, and it was a rousing success. Xerxes is so happy that he chose Esther as his queen. He's like, man... Look at this dinner. This is awesome. Haman, Haman now, he's the second in command. He's kind of the one that was invited here. Haman left the meal with a full stomach and an even bigger head. He was a big deal. He's on top of the world. Not only was he the first guy the king would come to for advice, now he's the go-to for Queen Esther to invite to private dinner parties like this is a big deal for him. Life was good for Haman. And as he walked through the palace, he walked with a swagger and arrogance that had come to define him. He's walking past all the lowly servants throughout the palace, thinking about how much better he is than all of them. And then he comes to the king's gate. And, and he comes to the king's gate, and he sees this guy named Mordecai. Now, if you weren't with us last week, when the edict was issued that all the Jews across the empire would be annihilated, would be killed uh, 11 months out, uh, Mordecai did something that was very common in that culture that isn't as common for us. He put on rough clothes and spread ashes on his face. It's called sackcloth, wearing sackcloth and, and ashes. And it was a sign of despair and sorrow. It was a way that people walked through grief at that time. So, so uh, Mordecai, when this took place, he put on the rough clothes, the sackcloth, and put ashes on his face, and he would sit at the king's gate wailing and mourning for his people, the Jews. So Haman, picture this, walks out of this dinner party. Things are great. He's just had a private dinner party with the queen and the king. Like, he's invited to this. He's got the best food, and he is on top of the world. And then he walks through the king's gate, and he sees Mordecai in his sackcloth, in his ashes, wailing and mourning. And this really good day, really good feeling for Mordecai, quickly shifted. It was really good, uh, and it shifted. As it shifted, Haman becomes enraged on the inside. So he quickly goes home, gets his wife and his friends together, and, and he, he's telling them, guys, this Mordecai dude is ruining my life. 
He's ruining my life. Everything was great. Like, look at this. The queen invited me, like no one else but the king and me. I'm really important. I'm a big deal. And Mordecai's ruining it all. I hate even looking at him. What should we do? What do we do about it? And, and here's what he said in verse 12. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she invited me along with the king tomorrow. So she's going to have another dinner party, and she's invited him. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So what do we do? Here's what his friends and his wife say. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pool set up, not a pool with like two O's, a pool with one O, pull like a post, reaching to a height of 50 cubits. That's, that's about 75 feet. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This, suggested, this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pool set up. Isn't that just crazy? If Mordecai wasn't going to submit, they're going to make him pay for it. So Haman had the gallows built immediately. Now, uh, Persian gallows didn't have a noose like you see in those old westerns. Uh, Persian gallows were a sharp pole or stake that people were literally impaled on. Haman, that night, goes to bed dreaming of Mordecai being skewered like a stake. For most of us, this isn't the most pleasant thing to dream about, uh, but Haman wasn't like most of us. Now, while this is all happening and transpiring, King Xerxes is in the palace, and he can't sleep. He's just one of those nights. He's tossing and turning. He's, he's rolling over. He sits up. He walks around the room. He tries everything he can, count sheep, whatever. He can't get to sleep. Nothing is working. And, and, and maybe it was something he ate. Maybe he took too long of a nap that day. He doesn't know why, but he can't sleep. Either way, he has a fail-safe solution to his insomnia. He calls in one of his servants to read the book of records. Now, the book of records is basically just a record of everything that's happened in the empire. Like, this happened and this happened. We purchased toilet paper and then we, you know, paid this bill. and we did. Like, it's, it's just a really boring, detailed list of records. Uh, so just hearing that, you know, might make you yawn. But for him, he was hoping that would put him to sleep. Uh, the court attendant walks in carrying this large scroll. scroll he sits down, he starts reading. Now, I suspect they didn't just bring in any court attendant. They brought like the most monotone, boring sounding like, hey, Bob, you're a great guy. Um, you put us all to sleep when you're talking to us. So why don't you go read this book of records to King Xerxes? So he comes in, he's reading. No emotion, no passion. He goes on and on. The wall to the palace is repaired. Now uh, new hires for the accounting department were approved. The king requested only Jif peanut butter is served throughout the palace. Uh, that might not actually have been in there. Um, I would suspect if he knew anything about peanut butter, it would be, but um, I might have thrown that one in. Uh, the reading was working. As the court attendant goes line by line, Xerxes is slowly, slowly easing to sleep. And then he hears this one line and sits up, straight, straight up. Mordecai reports an assassination attempt and saves the king's life. Stop right there, he says. As soon as he hears that line, stop, stop right there. And, and, and now, do you remember, maybe if you were with us last week, there was this random few verses in Esther chapter 2 that, that seemed to be dropped in chapter 2 and then just like moved on from. Mordecai had overheard this plot to kill, kill King Xerxes. He reported it to Esther, who then reported it to the king. King Xerxes' life was spared. The action was recorded, but nothing more was ever done. That was until now. Verse 3 
of Esther 6. It says, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. He finds out nothing had been done to reward this man for sparing the king's life. Not even so much as a Hallmark card or an edible arrangement. Nothing was done. Basically, he spared the king's life and things went on. He immediately gets up and starts pacing. Something has to be done to reward this man. The guy literally had saved his life. He can't figure out what should be done. So he needs some advice. Verse 4. The king said, who's in the court? He's like, I need some advice. Who's in my court in the building that I can ask for advice? Who better than his second in command, right? Haman just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had just set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman's standing in the court. Bring him in, the king answered. This makes a lot of sense. If he's going to look for advice on how can he celebrate and reward this guy who spared his life, of course he's going to ask his right-hand man, his private counsel. Like, this is the guy he's going to ask. Now, remember, it's the wee hours of the morning. The sun's barely rising. Both Xerxes and Haman are in the palace that morning with Mordecai on their mind. Xerxes wanted to honor him. And Haman wanted to impale him. So the king calls for Haman. Haman walks in, as proud as a peacock. Before Haman could even get a good morning out of his mouth, the king quickly asks him this question. It's recorded in verse 6. What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman, so full of himself, immediately assumes he's talking about me. He's asking me what should be done. He's, he's basically giving me the opportunity to, to throw my own party. This is a pretty good deal, pretty good setup. Um, he puffs his chest out as Haman envisions this all unfolding with him at the center of it. And here's how he responds in verse 7. For the man the king delights to honor, probably pointing at himself, and Xerxes is probably like, what is he doing? Have them bring a royal robe for the king the, the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head so everyone knows this is the king's horse. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. As the words left Haman's mouth, he's exploding on the inside with excitement and pride of what's going to transpire. He's going to be paraded through the streets as the king's top man. This is going to be the best moment of his life. Now, if there was ever an example of the verse, pride comes before a fall, this is it. Xerxes loves the idea, so much so, he essentially says, awesome idea. That's why I love your advice, Haman. You always come up with good ideas. And what happens next is one of the most unexpected turns in all of Scripture. Verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Oh my goodness, I can just hear uh, Haman's jaw hitting the floor. And just like that, it's now declared Mordecai Day in all of Susa. The marching band, the color guard, the horses, the pageantry, all for Mordecai. This would be the first of many unexpected twists and turns of this story. Mordecai was supposed to be impaled on a 75-foot pole 
But instead, he's celebrated with a parade. Haman was hoping to lead Mordecai to the gallows, but now is leading him through the streets of Susa to cheers. Now, who could have ever seen this coming? Like, what a crazy twist. These seemingly random occurrences uh, at such coincidental moments all took place. If there was ever poetic justice, man, this would be it. But was it really random? I don't think it was at all. God was at work in these little details. He was the conductor orchestrating every little piece of this story. The king couldn't sleep. A court official brings in the book of records. A line that had been written years before about Mordecai just happens to be on the page he turns to. Haman's own plans that lead him into the king's court that morning at that specific time. Reminds me of Ephesians 1.11. He makes everything work out according to his plan. Even in a secular, godless place like Persia, God's plan was still unfolding. Even through the interaction of two men that had just declared uh, the genocide, execution of thousands of Jews, God's plan was still unfolding. Even in the midst of impossible circumstances, God was still at work. And, and this might sound like some nice fairy tale we share with our kids, like Humpty Dumpty or Cinderella, uh, but, but here's the deal. This all really happens. Like, what, what, what's contained in Scripture isn't just like fairy tales we tell ourselves or tell our kids to make us feel better. Like, these are real people. You can go back and look. King Xerxes was a real king, and Haman was a real person. Mordecai and Esther were real people. And here's the reality. God doesn't just work in situations like that with Esther, but he can actually do that in your life. You see, the, the deck might seem to be stacked against you today. You've tried to dig your way out of that pit of financial debt. You've, you've worked hard for that promotion that you continually are overlooked for. Or that person in your life that makes you miserable is never going to change, and you're frustrated by that. And, and may, you may have come to believe that life is just a matter of chance. It's a roll of the die from one day to the next, and it doesn't seem to be rolling in your favor very often. You continually take the high road, but it never seems to work out in your favor or benefit you in any way. And if that's where you find yourself, consider what's transpired here today. Mordecai starts the day in rough, ugly, ragged clothes. His face is covered by ashes. He's weeping and wailing in the shadow of a 75-foot skewer that has his name on it. But in a single moment, he goes from that condition to being ushered through the streets in a parade wearing a royal robe. What Haman had planned and masterminded, uh, and remember, he's second in command. He's got a lot of power. All of that became like mud in the hands of God's providence. And maybe you've heard the saying before that the devil is in the details. Have any of you ever heard that before? The devil's in the details. I don't believe that's true at all because here's why. God is in the details. God works in the small, seemingly insignificant moments, the moments we could quickly and easily overlook. Through it all, God is working out his bigger purposes, even when it seems certain everything that you're experiencing is random or by chance. In the fall of 1999, I had just started my senior year of high school. Uh, I know I look so much younger than that. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I was excited because I... Uh, I'd been attending a, a Bible, by Bible club. It was kind of a, a ministry or a group on campus at my high school. Uh, it was a Christian club. 
I've been attending it for three years up to this point, and this was my senior year. I was finally going to get to be in charge. I was so excited. Since I was now leading it, I got connected with a friend who I just met the previous year by the name of Travis Deans. Uh, Travis worked for an organization called Teens for Christ, and he helped connect and resource students like myself who were leading Bible clubs and ministries like this, uh, Christian clubs, on their public school campuses in West Mullen County. One of the things Travis organized was a monthly lunch with all the Bible club leaders across the county at the West Mullen Mall food court. Now, just a side note, uh, this is kind of neat to me. Two of the people that were part of this group uh, who were leaders in like Christian clubs or, or Bible clubs, one was Amber Cole, who was up here singing. Uh, she was at Southmoreland, go fighting Scotties. Whoo! Um, and the other, Jason, who was leading worship, his dad, Bob Weaver, was the other one, and he was leading that Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, at Yawk. So it's neat how God, like, brings it all together. So that's just a side note. Um, well, uh, through those lunches, yeah, I became really good friends with this student who was at Norwin High School. His name is JP. And another friend uh, who was from Hemfield High School. His name is Jason. Um, as, as we saw each other frequently throughout the school year, we became really, really good friends. About halfway through the school year, my friend JP was sharing how his youth group was going on this mission trip. And uh, he was like, man, you guys should go with us. Now, I'd never uh, gone on a trip like this. I'd never really been outside of America or Canada, so this was kind of a big step. Uh, and I talked to my parents, and we decided, let's go for it. So for the next seven, eight months, I'd be, uh, uh, next seven or eight months would be filled with planning meetings and fundraising, getting to know the rest of the team that was coming from JP's church, especially his youth pastor, who was leading the trip. I, I didn't have a youth pastor at the time uh, at my church, and JP's youth pastor became like, like a youth pastor to me. He was an incredible guy that I absolutely loved spending time with. Well, the time came for us to go on the trip. It was, man, remarkable 12 days of seeing the miraculous and the supernatural. Man, God, it worked through us in ways that we never thought was possible, and many of us still do not, have not forgotten. This was such a special trip for me. Since it happened the summer between me graduating high school, senior, and me going to Bible college my freshman year, it was like God was setting me up for Bible college. It was so neat. It seemed like just the right experience to prepare me for this journey toward ministry that was ahead. Well, I went through five years of Bible college, uh, stayed an extra year, got a couple extra degrees, loved every minute of it, probably would have stayed longer if I had the choice. Uh, I loved Bible college. It was an awesome experience. Uh, I went on different missions trips during those years while I was in college, but I always remember that special trip to El Salvador that we went on in the summer of 2000. As I was preparing to graduate, JP's old youth pastor, Pastor Todd Nevue, reached out to me. He was no longer the youth pastor, but now is the lead pastor of that church. He reached out because he was looking to hire a youth pastor and asked if I would be interested. I went through the interview process, and honestly, because I knew this pastor so well and had felt God nudge me in that direction, I accepted the position and started as a youth pastor in May of 2007 at Calvary Church here in Irwin. So many seemingly random interactions and moments, even more numerous than I, had ever, I, I have even mentioned today, uh, would just happen to bring me to Calvary. I, I couldn't see them all in the moment. I look back now over 20 years later and see the hand of God in ways I'd never realized as a high school student in 1999. I'm confident that I would never be the lead pastor here at Calvary today and get to be part of such a wonderful church 
if it weren't for my friend JP and his invitation to go on that mission trip. Without uh, that, I would never have known Calvary. I would have never met the incredible man that was Pastor Todd Nevue. The youth pastor position would have never even been on my radar. I, I tell you that story to illustrate that what you're walking through today might seem so random. Your circumstances might seem so insurmountable. The outcomes might seem, seem inevitable. But there's a part of the story that we so often miss. It's not what's happening to you. That's usually pretty obvious. Like, you can figure that out. It's what's happening behind you, what's happening around you, what's happening beneath the surface of what you're observing, experiencing, or feeling. That's what we don't see or don't realize. And, and just like a tsunami that goes undetected beneath the surface for potentially hundreds of miles of open ocean, God's power is so often at work beneath the surface. And what might seem like just a small random bump on the ocean surface is this mighty roaring tsunami. Like God is working and something is swelling. As we close today, the worship team comes. I, I don't know what life looks like for you. I don't know what's transpired. I don't know how uh, life is going. Maybe you've given up on anything good or purposeful coming from your life. Like maybe you've had enough time over the last few months, couple years. You've just accepted the fact that my life is going to be this way the rest of my life. Things are going to fall apart. Things are going to be miserable. I just need to accept that fact. Maybe, maybe you've, you've passed on the potential that God could work anything out of the mess that you're walking through. The pain has become too great. The circumstances have become too impossible. There's absolutely no hope. Like you've given up hope because you held on to hope maybe early on, but the Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. You've had hope deferred, meaning like hope not realized enough times that you've pretty much given up on the possibility of hope. You've written that off. Let me tell you this morning, the same God that could take a death sentence for Mordecai and turn it into a parade or take a random high school friend and bring, uh, bring a, a, about a pastor is working in your life too. Never count God out. Never discount what God can do. And, and I want to close with this story that I, I came across once. If, if you know anything about the game of chess, you know it all comes down to when the king on either side can, you know, can basically can't do anything else. They, they can move, uh, make no more moves. Once the king is trapped, the winning side declares checkmate. I don't know if any of you ever played chess. Uh, my son, Zach, I've tried to teach him chess. He loves the idea of playing chess. hasn't quite mastered and figured it out yet, but he loves the idea, the, the strategy of it. Huh. And, and when, when someone's declared checkmate, the game is over. It's finished. There's a painting that, that hangs in the Louvre uh, Museum in Paris. Uh, it's a painting that's entitled Checkmate. And uh, that, that, uh, it's, it's now in private hands, having been sold uh, uh, to a private auction in 1999. But the painting depicts, depicts two chess players. Uh, one is Satan, who appears arrogantly confident. The other player is a man who looks forlorn. If Satan wins, he wins the man's soul. You can view, uh, you know, uh, the, the picture there on the screen. The, the chess, uh, a chess grandmaster came upon this intriguing painting one day in the Louvre Museum uh, alongside other famous, you know, paintings like the Mona Lisa. And the grandmaster stared a long time at this chessboard and the painting and finally noticed something surprising. 
the chess grandmaster uh, stares and stares at the chessboard and suddenly steps back, uh, flabbergasted, and explains, it's wrong, it's wrong. The king has one more move. He, he runs to his friend and, and, and he'd come with him, and together they look at the painting, and he said, we have to contact the painter, the chess grandmaster says. It's not checkmate. The king has one more move left. And today you might be in the most hopeless of situations. But I want you to know the king has one more move. There is hope even in the midst of darkness and despair. When your dreams seem dead, when your future seems dark, remember this. Jesus is still alive. He is the light of the world even in the midst of darkness. Can, can I tell you, one of our postures in society today, even as Christians, that so many have adopted is the posture of a victim. That our circumstances are so random, there's such a matter of chance that I have no control and no one has any control and I'm just a victim. Like I was somehow single-handedly chosen by chance to be the victim of these circumstances. Whether it's your job, your finances, relationships, uh, diagnosis, like I'm just a victim. But I want to tell you something this morning. I think this is so important. This is a shift in our mindset. You are not a victim of your circumstance. You are a vehicle of God's providence. And I'll say it again so you can get it. You are not a victim of circumstance, like just some random thing that happened. You are a vehicle of God's providence, meaning that even in the, 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 the random occurrences and chance things that happen to you, I promise you deeply, they are not random. God is ordering your steps. He's working out his purposes. You aren't some random person navigating through life trying to figure out how this all works. You are a vehicle of God's providence. God is working through you to fulfill his purposes. I promise you, if you're willing to lean in to what he wants to do, you'll see hope on the horizon. You'll get glimpses of God's hand at work in your life. A death sentence by Mordecai becomes a declaration of a parade in the next moment. You might be walking through a season that you don't know if you'll ever find your way out of. Can I tell you? God sees the beginning from the end. He's working it. You might not see it, because more often than not, you won't see it. Because God's working in ways and in areas that you would never have seen anyway. As I look back over my life, there are so many moments where now I look back, hindsight's 2020, where, where, man, God, if I had gone this way, this would never have happened. Or, and just a random, almost insignificant decision I've made or people that come into my path or things that have happened. Like one move in the other direction would have gone a completely different direction for my life. That's how God works. And we can trust in his providence. We can trust that, that God is working all things for our good. Not so that we're happy and, and, and have everything we want, but so ultimately he received the glory because his purposes become a reality. You are not a victim of circumstance. You're a vehicle of God's providence. And as we prepare to, to close this morning, I don't know what life looks like for you and, and all that keeps you up at night and the anxiety and the worry and the stress and the things you're concerned about. And you don't know where it's all going to land. You know the result or the cause of most anxiety is uncertainty. We usually are most anxious about the things we're uncertain about, right? Like, what's going to happen when I meet with that doctor? What are they going to say? 
How's things going to go at that meeting with my boss? Are they going to be really happy or really mad? Am I going to lose my job or get a promotion? You don't know. It's the uncertainty. I don't, I don't know how uh, things are going to work out this month. I've got more month than I have money. I'm not sure. It brings anxiety. I'm not saying that we just kick our feet up and let God do whatever he's going to do because he's going to work with you. But here's my hope for you today is that the stress, the anxiety, the worry, the despair that we can all adopt very easily of being a victim, that we, we put that aside. Say, God, I'm a vehicle of your providence. Do what you will with me. That we lean ourselves and our attention toward what God is wanting to do more so than looking for more circumstances and situations to reinforce the idea that we're victims. If you're looking to be a victim, you're going to find plenty of reasons to be a victim. I promise you. But if you're looking to be a vehicle of God's providence, if you're looking for that, you're leaning into that, you're listening to the Holy Spirit, and you're willing to be obedient to that, I promise you, you're going to find opportunities to be a vehicle of God's providence in life. Not just in church. Actually, more often than not, outside of church, God's going to use you. I, I don't know about you, but I want to be, I want to be a Mordecai and Esther. That even when it doesn't make sense, I lean into God and trust Him. And I recognize. Maybe I haven't in my past. Maybe you haven't in your past. But you recognize today, from this day on, I want to be a vehicle of God's providence. I, I want to be used by God to fulfill His purposes. I want to see God's plans worked out in my life. I don't want to try to figure this out on my own. I don't want to wallow here in despair and all that hasn't happened. I know God is working beneath the surface that I can't even see. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing a song here as we close. And, and you might ask, like, why do we sing songs? Like, what's the whole deal of this? Is this like, you know, karaoke time with Pastor Jason? Um, it's not. If it was karaoke time with Pastor Jason, we'd probably be singing, uh, what's the song? You're, you're, the, never going to give you up. There you go. Um, we're, not, we're not singing that, so... Here's the idea of worship, and this is what's so powerful about worship. Worship is an action that we take to activate our spirit and to focus our attention on the one that ultimately holds the outcomes. To say, God, I turn my face toward heaven, and I know I, don't, I, can't, I can't make sense of all that I'm seeing, all that I'm walking through. I can't make sense of all this, but I know you do, and I'm going to willingly entrust myself to you worship you and focus my attention on you and declare who you are in my life. Before we sing this song, if you feel comfortable just lifting your hands or putting your hands before you, God, we just come before you. We just declare, Lord, we are vehicles of your providence. God, that even when everything around us is death, even when everything around us is dark, God, even when uh, the circumstances we see before us are overwhelming and insurmountable, Lord, you are our hope. You are the light that pierces the darkness. You are the one that is working beneath the surface. God, as we sing this song together, Lord, we declare that we trust you. We surrender to you. We say, Lord, use us for your glory. Jesus, have your way in all that we do. Let's sing this song together this morning. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. 
At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 